It gives me so much joy to see our OBC kids uh, praising the Lord and, and dancing and being crazy and some of them hating being up there because I remember that too. And uh, all of our, uh, our Alive students uh, leading us in worship this morning, um, it's real. Like God is working in their lives and it's evidence of that. I'm a product of both of those um, and I don't deserve either of them, but God used you guys to raise me in this place. Um, and to teach me uh, the scriptures and to teach me how to follow Jesus and to teach me. Uh, God used worship ministry for me, honestly, to hold on to me um, and taught me so much about him and gave me friends through worship. We were so bad um, at playing music for so long. Um, but me and Eddie came up. We eventually got good. Um, but it was a product of this church. So thank you. And thank you to those who gave to go to camp. I know some of you when, when that comes up, you love to give um, for students to go to camp because it is five days of Jesus and five days of worship, and it's the best thing um, that our students can have. Today is also the 4th of July. We're celebrating our 245th birthday as America. Yeah. And I can just think of that day 245 years ago where those men sat and they signed this Declaration of Independence, which I'm sure was terrifying which then led to so many people serving and giving their lives to secure that freedom and so many people who have served since and are serving right now to maintain our freedom that we have in this country. Um, and I am so grateful that I was born in the United States. I'm so grateful that I currently live here and get to serve here because we get to worship Jesus Christ and gather and we don't have to worry about it. Um, and that is an amazing freedom that not everybody gets to have, and we do not take that for granted. So um, if you're in here and you have served um, in our military um, and you're willing and able to stand, I would love for you to do that so we can honor you this morning. Um, if anybody in here, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your service. Um, and if you join me, I want, I want to pray for our country. I want to pray for our leaders. I want to pray um, for those people who are serving right now. Um, and I, I just want to praise God for the blessing that we have to live in such a country. So join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much um, for you. Thank you, Lord, um, for this country that I thank you that I get to praise your name without fear, that I get to speak your name on the streets if I want and not have to worry about it. And that is not the same case for our brothers and sisters around the world. We've heard stories of our sister in Chad who gets dragged in front of courts and beaten by her own family for proclaiming Jesus. Um, and so, Lord, we thank you for this country. I thank you for the men and women that just stood, that have fought to uh, maintain our freedom um, and the ones that are currently watching right now. Lord, we pray that you're with them. I pray for our president, Lord, that you give him wisdom. And Lord, we know in your scripture that we can take rest in every leader that you have put them in the place that they are because you are in control and you are sovereign. So, Lord, we pray for just grace and wisdom for our leaders, and we pray for all of those who are serving in our country, and we just praise you um, for the United States. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 127. We're going to continue our series, uh, Summer in the Psalms, in Psalm 127. And as I read this passage of Scripture, the one question that keeps coming up to me is, does what I do matter? Does what I do matter? And we're going to address that a little bit. 
So in my family, we had several people who served in the military. I had two uncles who were Marines. Two of my cousins were Marines. I had an uncle who was a Navy SEAL. My grandfather was in the Navy, which is ultimately why I am here, because the Navy moved his family, including my dad, to Orlando, where he was an instructor at what is now Baldwin Park. Um, now there's houses where he taught. Um, but that's why we're here. And later, uh, my grandmother remarried. Um, and so my step-grandfather's name was Richard Harding. And I want to tell a story about him from World War II, um, where he had to make a decision, and it mattered, and it mattered in an eternal significance. So he fought uh, and flew planes. He flew this plane that we're going to put on the screen in World War II, which is probably the coolest plane I've ever seen, which is a Lockheed P-38 Lightning. And if you watch Tailspin as a kid like I did, it kind of looks like the Tailspin plane that Old Blue flew, or I don't know what his name was in that. That one also says Yippee on the front. So I'm sure that was for morale boosting right there. Um, but in World War II, he fought in the Pacific, and he was a captain in the U.S. Army Air Corps, um, which means he had a lot of men that served underneath him. Um, and one time, towards the end of the war, um, they took over a base in Japan. And at this time, China was one of our allies um, in World War II. And so they took over this Japanese base. China was going to come and destroy the base so it couldn't be used anymore. And so my grandfather and all of his guys and everybody had to get out. So while they're getting ready to leave, before all this is happening, his men bring a Japanese POW in front of him. And he can tell from their conversations that they were about to take matters into their own hand and do what they wanted because who cares? No one's going to see. They're going to bomb this place in a little bit. So what really matters? And so he had a decision to make, and what he did is he stood up to those guys, and he said, you're not going to do that. Um, and he chose to love his neighbor as himself and stick his neck out for someone that he didn't have to, especially in wartime. There was no, there's no reason he should have done that. There's looking back at it, but he felt like he was supposed to. So he took this handcuffed man away from those guys, uh, and he put him on his plane on one of these things. I don't know how they both fit, but he couldn't speak Japanese and that man couldn't speak English. So they flew to the next base to safety. Um, and then he dropped him off uh, to the proper authorities and just kind of walked away, not thinking anything of it. In that moment, he was just doing his job and he put another person ahead of himself and did what was right. Fast forward two years later, World War II is over and he's at work. Uh, he's in his office. I can only imagine his secretary comes in and says, hey, you have some visitors. And so he says, okay, you can send them in. And in walk two people, one of which is the man whose life he saved, and he's holding a box. And next to him is a translator. And through the translator, he begins to learn that the man he saved was a Japanese general. And the man begins to say through tears, thank you for saving my life. Thank you from my wife, she says, thank you for saving my life. And on behalf of my kids, I want to say thank you for saving my life. And then he proceeds to give my grandfather this box, and it is full of pearls, like the real ones, the good ones. And he gives him this box and just says, thank you. Those pearls ended up putting my grandfather through college, and then later he kept, kept the rest and made a necklace that he ended up giving to my grandmother, and my mom has them now. I almost had them up here, but then I was nervous, like one of y'all would come steal them while I was preaching, so I just... <laughs> I would rather not have the temptation around. But what an incredible story about one thing he did in a moment that didn't seem of much consequence during a war of World War II's magnitude, um, but what he did mattered. And it had an eternal impact and it had an eternal 
significance while he was just doing his job, loving his neighbor as himself. So as we read Psalm 127, does what I do matter? And in the psalm, it makes it clear that God is at work. He's building his kingdom. Uh, and we get to be doers of this glory of, glorious work. We get to be doers of work that we know truly, really, really, really matters because God works and it matters to God. So let's read Psalm 27. It's a psalm of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And that's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word who you are and who you are calling us to be. Lord, I pray that you hide me behind your word. Uh, and Lord, make us quick to hear and slow to speak and help us to be more like you and to glorify you in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we see Solomon writes this psalm and he makes this statement. It says, unless the Lord, which King James Bible says, except the Lord or the in the message, it says, if God doesn't do it, if God doesn't build it, the builders labor in vain. So it asks that question, does what I do even matter? If it's possible for me to do work in vain, is work even a good thing? It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It might be news to some of you, but work is a good thing. Just throwing that out there. God works and God is good. So therefore, God is good. We're going to take that from his word. And we can see that in scripture in Genesis 1-1, God created. Genesis 2-3, it says, God finished his work that he had done. Genesis 2-15 tells us that God puts us to work because God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We skip on down to Jesus in John 5-17, and Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So we see from scripture that work is an activity of God. Work is an activity of God. In this passage, this verse not only implies that God is building his house, but it's also God inviting us to be a part of the building, like we have something to do alongside of God and build with him. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is God-ordained work. This is God-centered building that he has called us to do but we still have to physically obey him and do it. But we're told, I love this passage that it just says, God planned the good works he has for Corey Cooper beforehand, and I just got to obediently walk into him. That makes me very happy because I don't have to conjure up what I'm going to do. I literally need to be following the Holy Spirit's leading of what God has already planned for me to do. But I have to do it. And James, the brother of Jesus, says in chapter 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So Christians, Scripture is clear that there is good work to be done, God-ordained work that he has for us to do. And it's not like we did the Heart of Christ series. It's not so that we impress God or that we can do anything so he loves me more. It is for his glory, and it's for our good that we are doing these things. And it also, we're told by James, it blesses those that I do good for, but I'm also blessed in my doing. 
We are blessed. We get joy when we do this. So before we look at what kind of work matters, I want us to look at two examples in the Bible where people got it completely wrong. And there's a little bit of both in all of us, I believe. But usually with humanity, we can look at the truth and we somehow swing the pendulum this way or swing it all the way back this way and we get it wrong and miss the point. So we're going to kind of look at these two. One's a workaholic type and one is more of a dropout type. Workaholics versus dropouts. The first one is in Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel. And they say, come, let us make ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We see immediately that this is not the type of work that God has in mind because this is 100% pride-driven work. Let us make a name for ourselves and build this thing so that we can say that we did it. And a lot of times we find purpose in what we do and not in who we are. And that can be found in the Tower of Babel. That is where it is a man-centered focus and not a God-centered focus. It's where we find our purpose in what we do and not who we are. And that is not what God has for us. And in our Western society, we really reward the work your fingers to the bone, work, 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 as if God can't be trusted to accomplish his will, or if I work hard enough, maybe I can alter the universe by trying really hard with my effort. But it is all in vain, we're told. The psalmist calms it, calls it out, Solomon calls it out and says it is weak faith, it's assertive pride when we do things like this and think that we can build and build and build whatever we want. But the truth is we struggle with this because when I put my mind to something, when I really try at something, I can get some cool stuff done. Like I'm pretty good at just like normal stuff. And especially if we come together, the things that we can accomplish together can be very good. We see in the Tower of Babel like they actually built this crazy tower and God had to mess it up. But we can see from humanity wonderful things happen, technology, medicine, buildings, systems, transportation. The stuff that we have now compared to even 50 years ago is incredible when humanity comes together and works together for these things. But building with man at the center and God not at the center, we're missing the point. We're missing the mark of what the psalmist is telling us here. It's evil and sinful because the structures and the machines become more important than the people who use them and the people who live in them or use them at all. When those things become more important than people, we can definitely see that something is wrong with that. So I know there's a bunch, maybe, but there's some workaholics in here. Um, sometimes I fall into that where I find my identity in accomplishment or doing things, or I'm happier when I got this whole checklist done. I love a list. I love crossing that list off, especially when it's a big one. But for me to think that I somehow have pleased God more because I accomplished, you know, a hundred things more than 90 things last week, like, oh yeah, God's really happy with me there. And I find my identity in that. But I want to remind you today, if you struggle with those things or find your identity in achieving, that you are a human being and not a human doing. I have to tell myself that all the time. Like God designed me as a person with specific limits, but I'm a human being and not a human doing. The opposite side of the pendulum from the workaholic, Paul addresses in 2 Thessalonians because there is some lazy people. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For if we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. We can simply see that laziness does not honor the Lord either. We see in the psalm that the Lord works and we must also work with and for him. If God gives us things to do and we don't do them, James 4 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. So in that idleness in itself is sin. So we can sin by trying to do too much without God and build without him. And we can also sin by missing the mark and not even trying. And we see here in these two pendulums that it's not pure activity and it's not being passive. It's not work, work, work. And it's also not God has accomplished everything through Jesus Christ, let's go fishing. It's neither one of those things. But the good work is in the middle of these of what the psalmist is telling us. So what kind of work is right? Work is right and work matters when God is at the center and we are at the periphery, when it's not about me. So how do we make sure God's work is at the center by this? Because it's truly a scary thought what he's saying, like, how many times have I built something and it's been in vain? That's a scary thing to think about when we think we're doing these good things or right things, especially in the world's eyes, we can do things that are great and productive. But to know at the end of it, I was being productive and working really hard and accomplishing the wrong thing. Like, that's a scary thing to say that that was all vanity. It was all in vain, which Solomon later says in his writings, vanity, vanity, it's all been vanity. But what a scary thing to think about. So how do we make sure our labor's not in vain? Paul lets us know in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If it is the work of the Lord, it cannot be done in vain. That's what Paul is telling us there. If it is the work of the Lord, it always matters. And the way that we can know it's the work of the Lord, I think, is to ask this simple question. How can God get the glory from this? Asking that question has been very beneficial to me, but how can God get the glory from this? And that can apply to anything we'll see here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what Paul's saying there is anything that I do can be done to the glory of God. Anything that I do. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do. Matthew 6, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So if it's work or speech or kindness or anything that we do that points people to glorify God, then it is the Lord's work, and the Lord's work cannot be done in vain. So that's how we know what we're doing is important, and it is the Lord's work. This question can also help you identify sin in your life, because if you ask something, uh, if God isn't glorified by this, then it's obviously not the best thing for me to do right now. Or you can identify work that's unnecessary, because if it doesn't glorify God, then why are you working on it? But the main thing for sin, uh, especially alive students, I want to talk to you about that. I remember asking so many questions uh, in high school that were like, where's the line? Where can I push this? Where, what, well, what do you mean? And this simple question can ask that. How can God get the glory from this? Because if it doesn't bring God glory, then it's not, what, not what's best for you. It's that simple. That's how you can identify, and that goes for everybody in here. If it doesn't bring God glory, then it's not what's best, it's not what's best for us uh, if it doesn't bring God glory. Paul said, and whatever you do, you can glorify God. 
in everyday tasks. I, I love that, that we can glorify God in the things that we do every single day. Asking this question, how can God get the glory? Even today, when you go out to eat and interact with your server, how can God get the glory? How can God get the glory when you talk to your kids on the way home or debrief VBS last week? God can be glorified in that. How can you glorify God with your free time? When you make your family dinner, how can God be glorified when you make, uh, uh, or today in your marriage, when you interview a new hire, when you discipline your kids, when you take your spouse on a date, how can God be glorified? When you go fish, when you exercise, when you tuck your kids at night, how can God get the glory in those things? Um, Chrissy and I like Taco Bell, which I feel like I just need to confess out loud, but we really like it. Um, yes, whatever. This story ends with God getting glory, so whatever. <laughs> but even last week, we go to the one uh, church. Sometimes we're just like, yeah, whatever, let's get Taco Bell. I like it. So uh, last week, we drove separately, and she went uh, through the Taco Bell drive through And I love my wife because if she ever sees a homeless person on the street or on a corner, she will buy them food and drop it off to them when she goes through. It's very convicting to me because I'm a jerk. But... She's amazing. And so last week, I get home. I'm about five minutes behind them. And she walks in, and there are four bags of Taco Bell food on our table. And I'm like, what just happened? And she's like, I spent $28 at Taco Bell. I was like, how did you do that? Everything we buy is a dollar. <laughs> Come to find out, there was a man there who was at the corner when she got there. And so she went and bought us food. And then she bought him lunch and a Baja Blast Freeze, because that is truly to the glory of God and also food for dinner. She went all the way through the line only to find out my man was gone uh, by the time she got there. But in that, Chrissy said, I wanna love my neighbor as myself and glorify God even through the Taco Bell drive-through. It's in those moments that we can glorify God and just be obedient. And it might not turn out, he might be gone, but I ate too much Taco Bell, so it was actually not a great thing. But you can glorify God in anything that you do. So how can God get the glory on Facebook or Instagram or on TikTok and whatever you do? How can God get glory in your relationships, in our conversations, at school with your teachers and your friends, at work with all your coworkers? Because in this room, there's so many people. And I believe that your occupation, I work in ministry and I'm blessed in that. But there's so many people in here that God has placed you specifically in your work environment on purpose because you will be with people that God wants to reveal himself to through you. In this room, we have lawyers, we have policemen, we have doctors, we have chefs, we have bakers, we have everything in between, executives, pastors, whatever you want to say. All of us can glorify God where we're at, and I want you to know that it is God's work. So do not think if you are working where God has you, providing for your family, that you should hold your head down. No, you can glorify God in the everyday things that we do. You can glorify God at a doctor's appointment. You can glorify God in your budget with your finances, in your physical health, in your mental health. Again, 1 Corinthians says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because when God is glorified, it is the Lord's work, and that is never, ever in vain. And we're also told that we're blessed in our doing. So today, what are you building? And is God at the center of it? Or are you, are, are you at the center of it? Because that's a good measure to know if we're doing the Lord's work in his building. The second half of verse 1 talks about watching. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Or another version said, to eat the bread of sorrows. 
So what are you watching over? And what's giving you anxiety? Or what's keeping you up at night? We have a 10-month-old boy, so that's my best illustration, so that's what you get all day today. But CJ is 10 months old, and I remember the first time that we put him in his own room in his bassinet was weird for us because he had slept in our room for several months, and then he got his big boy room sleeping all by himself. But we were watching. That's when we plugged in the baby monitor, put the brightness all the way up and the volume all the way up, and me and Chrissy just sat next to each other watching this TV. Because, you know, you hear about SIDS or whatever that thing's called in the hospital where, like, if he just rolls over the wrong way, eee. So we're making sure he's breathing. Chrissy's like, is his diaphragm going up and down? Can we tell? <laughs> like, we're we trying to hear him if he's making sound, if he, you know, flips over, if his pacifier comes out, if his leg gets stuck. We're, like, worrying about all these things. Only to realize, like, even if I'm watching over this, do I really believe that what I'm watching I can control? And the answer is no. And the psalmist calls out here and says that the Lord can, and the Lord is the best watchman that we have. And even now, he's 10 months old and crawling all over the place, which is a new kind of watching, and I think he's trying to walk soon, but he can move like 15 feet in like two seconds. So it's a whole different kind of watching and anxiety that we have to deal with. But this, Lord sa- or, but this verse says that the Lord is the one that's truly watching. So the next thing is, what what do you need to hand over to God and let Him worry about in your life? What do you need to seek the Lord in prayer for? Because our anxiety can only do so much that we need to hand it over to the Lord and seek Him in prayer and give it to Him. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. I love the way that's worded because it doesn't say cast all your anxieties on him because he can solve it all, but truly we cast our anxieties on him because he cares for you. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but the Lord cares and does not want his children to be anxious over anything. He wants us to be resting in him. Verse 2 says, it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So why? Why does Solomon say it's in vain that you get up early and in vain that you go to bed late, in vain that you try really hard over the things you're anxious over? Uh, And the reason is when we're anxiously working hard to build and to watch and to control everything in our life, we're missing a gift. We're missing a gift of God when we are anxiously working and trying to control everything. It says here, for he gives to his beloved sleep. There's a lot of truth in that statement, but the first is God calls us his. When he says to me, like, I'm his, I'm his possession, that he loves me, that he's my father, and I'm an adopted child, I'm his. The second word is beloved. I am his beloved, which means he loves me dearly. CJ is my beloved. That's how we have to look at it. I love him, and I would do anything for him. And that's how God looks at me and looks at his children. God hates it when his children are sleepless, working their fingers to the bone, God does not enjoy it when we're anxious, when we're trying to build something for ourselves, or when we are trying uh, to watch over everything. Because the truth is, He owns everything. He never sleeps, so He's a much better watchman. And everything He watches, He can actually control because He's sovereign and in control of all things, and He is good. It says, He feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field. And God does not like to see us anxious, so He offers us rest. But it's, do we believe that? Usually when I'm anxious and worried about stuff, it's because I have a lack of faith that he's actually working on it, that he's actually in control of it. And I'm thinking, "Uh, 
well, he's only kind of answering my prayers, so I got to do most of the work here, and I got to figure this out on my own. And that's not what he's trying to tell us to do here. There is God work for us to do, but he wants us to do it in a way where we can rest in him. It's why God invented the Sabbath and gave it to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Even now, like I try to Sabbath like once a day where I don't check email, I don't work. It's really a day where I like try not to even do laundry. Because when I do that, it is proving to myself that God can run the world without me today. And that's really good for my heart because I like to do things. I like to get things done. I like to check things off. But for one day a week, I try to not do that. And it proves to me, and God uses that to show that he's in control and I never was. I was never in control of all of these things. So what we do matters when God's at the center and we're at the periphery. And we have a good father who wants to give us rest and wants to give us sleep. And he gives good gifts, which leads us to verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We learn here that children are a heritage, children are a reward, and children are a blessing. All my OBC kids in here say, children are a blessing. Like you believe it, you're a blessing. Say it. I am a blessing. Okay, whatever. I lost him. But children are a heritage, a reward, are a blessing. And if you're like me, you read this and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with the first two verses of this chapter? Because it doesn't seem to make sense. Like there's a block in here. But when we're talking about work, well, the truth is that creating children requires participation, but hardly our work. It is a God-building thing. It says that God's the one building. God's the one working. God is the one knitting children together in the womb. God is doing the work. Children are a miracle and truly amazing. I'm using my wife a lot as an illustration, but when Chrissy was pregnant with CJ, she was extremely sick for two months. She could barely eat. She could barely drink. We went to the ER twice. She lost 20 pounds. Um, and what seemed to be she was doing the exact opposite of working, God was working, and God was building, and God was watching. And when, even when I could only just sit around and try uh, to love on her but to watch, and I could barely do anything, God was watching, and God was building, and building my son when it seemed to be doing the exact opposite to my wife. And in that, we see the goodness of God, um, but I, I learned in that that Chrissy is God's beloved, and I am God's beloved, and CJ is God's beloved, and he is truly building and watching and working, even when we don't see it. So while making kids is just a thing of participation, raising kids is work. Amen? All right, lots of people with that. Raising kids is work, but we have to look at that work through the first two verses, the same lens, where God is at the center and we're at the periphery. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. And that means for, for me and Chrissy, for all of you in here that have kids with you, uh, we have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of God work to do of training up our children, teaching them, caring for them, feeding them, everything that we do. But it is God work that we see here. Because if they're a gift from the Lord, then doing anything for them to raise them and train them is God-centered work. It is God work that we do. And raising, it, raising them is eternal work. We have to disciple our kids. We have to teach them the ways of the Lord because we are constantly modeling Christ to our kids and they're just watching us and they're learning all the time. Which is why this body is so important. Because my kid's gonna grow up watching you too. 
He's going to have more examples of what it means to follow Jesus outside of my house. But we need each other for that, and that's why I love that we have OBC Kids and we have a live where we come together and do this together because we need one another for all of that. But asking this question, the same question, how can God get the glory? How can God get the glory as I care for CJ? How can God get the glory when we go to the pediatrician and talk to our doctors when they know that we're believers and we talk about it? How can God get the glory when we feed him or when he wakes up in the middle of the night like six times like last night? How can God get the glory in that? But it is true in everything that we do as we watch over this boy, as we train up this boy, we can glorify God. But even with him, as I watch, I have to ask myself constantly, what am I worrying about with him that I need to hand over to the Lord? Is it his health? Is it his sleep? His bumps and bruises? Worrying about how we're going to pay for stuff one day? Already starting with that. Worrying about, is he going to get beat up and made fun of? Is he going to break an arm? Is he going to date some crazy lady one day? All these things that we worry about, but it's, it's things that I will never be able to control. I can train him up and point him to Jesus and I can pray for him, but it's out of my control, but I trust that the Lord is the one that's watching over him. So do you pray for your children? Do you pray for your children? Do you trust that God loves them more than you do? That's a tough one, but it's true. Do we trust that God loves them more than we do? Verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. I did do a lot of studying on this, but the gate is not just the entrance to the city. The gate was where people would gather and settle disputes. It's like a courthouse or a town hall. And we see in the Old Testament that there would be elders who would reside over that. Uh, and later the king would sit there. Um, and it was the courthouse is where people would come together and just settle these disputes. So when I read uh, this passage, I'm like, well, is it really just like a flex of, well, I got seven kids, you only got five, let's go. Like arrows that he has in his quiver ready for battle. And it could be that. It could be this guy's got a small army, so you can't intimidate him because he's got so many kids willing to fight for him. But if we look at it through the rest of the psalm, we see that the man who understands that children are a gift, that children are a blessing, that children are a picture of God's faithfulness in his life, the man who really understands that obviously knows that God is the one who builds, God is the one who watches, and God loves his children. So when enemies come knocking, God's in control of every situation the world can throw at us. Every time he has a child that he gets to put in his quiver is just another picture of God's faithfulness, of God showing up in his life. And you can't get to a man who has God at the center of everything. You really can't. He has his perspective in line. He has the truth that God is the point of everything, and our job is to glorify him with everything that we do, and he knows it. I can also see that it's hard to intimidate a man whose children love and respect him enough to show up at the court with him and stand next to him. That man knows the blessing of children and knows that it is a gift from the Lord every time. And as we go about our daily routines, I want you to continue to ask, how can God get the glory? Because that's what we're here for. One of our students said it up there, and they understand it. I think Maddie said it, and I just smiled because that's a God thing. But our job is to glorify God in everything that we do, and we have opportunities to do that in everything. As you raise your kids, as you go to work, as you go to lunch after this, there are no mundane tasks. When God is at the center of it, it can glorify God. Even things that you think are trivial or simple or you're just 
you know, blending up food to feed my son. I am glorifying God if I do it with God at the center where I'm not the point. And that's all sin. Sin is where I'm the point and God is not. We just need to reverse that to glorify God in everything that we do. I want to invite you to stand for me. We're going to go uh, into a time of prayer and then we'll worship. But parents and children alike, um, I want to invite you that if you need to Come down and pray and ask God, what are the things I can do today to glorify you? Or you need to confess and say, Lord, I know that what I've been working on has been in vain because it's been all about me. There's a time of confession for that. Also, parents and children, uh, well, parents, children are a gift. I don't know, sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but children are a gift. And if you're making your child feel like they're not a gift, I believe that that is sin. Children are a gift. And children in here believe that you are a blessing. You are a heritage from the Lord, a gift of God. And if you, anybody in here, as old as you are, if you were ever uh, seen or you felt like you didn't matter or that you were a burden or that you were just causing your parents a lot of trouble, that is not your fault. Because that is not God's intention. That's not how God sees you. You are never a burden to him. We're actually told to burden him with prayer and to pester him a lot, more than we're comfortable with because he loves us. And that's why we cast our anxieties on him. So children in here know that you are a gift and you are a picture of faithfulness, even to those of us in here looking around at other kids. So we have a time where we can come to the Lord in prayer. Um, But since we have our kids in here and all of our students, I, I want us to pray for them. This is our student takeover service. So we would be remiss not to pray for our kids today. Um, So if you're with your child, uh, just put your hand on them, gather them up, gather your quiver of arrows real quick. And those of you who don't have kids, just join me in prayer, but I want us to pray for the next generation. Like this is the next generation, even after me proclaiming the same Jesus with different songs, a new song, and we praise God for that. So join me in prayer. And then after that, the, the altars are open. If you want to know this Jesus, this God who is a good father, who showed his love, even that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. That is the gospel. That is why we believe this, that he is a good father. And I'll be down here if you want to talk more about that. But the altar will also be open uh, if you want to confess anything or give anything to the Lord in prayer this morning. But let's pray for our kids. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of my son. I thank you for what you have taught me in the last 10 months. I thank you for showing your faithfulness, showing that you are in control, that you are watching over him more than I ever could. You're watching him when we're both sleeping. You're building him up. And Lord, help me to see the work of parenting. Help me to see the work of ministry, whatever I have, uh, as an opportunity to glorify you in the, even the mundane. But Lord, I pray for these kids in here, right now specifically just our fifth graders and down, Lord, that you would save them, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would grow up in the knowledge of your will, in the knowledge of who you are, knowing that you're a better father, a better parent than their parents will ever be, but know that they're fully loved by you. So Lord, I pray for the next generations of Orlando Baptist Church, the kids in these pews, the kids on this stage leading us in worship, Lord, they are going to faithfully declare your good works to the next generation. We believe that and we need them to. And Lord, I thank you for the people who have come before, the people who taught me in Sunday school, the senior adults in here who have poured into my life for 30 years. 
Thank you for them, their faithfulness, Lord. You use it, it glorifies you, and it is a eternal reward that we'll never even understand how important it is until we get to heaven. So Lord, use this time and be with our kids, and we give them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, I'm Pastor Dustin Janty. Thank you so much for joining us online for worship today. If something spoke to you from the message, or if you have a question about it, we'd love for you to share that with us. Just comment below or send us a message. And if you made a decision to follow Jesus today, we are so excited for you. We believe there is no more important decision you could make. We'd love to connect with you and help you take your next steps in following Jesus. Again, thank you so much for joining us online today. We hope to see you soon.